0: Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from political scandals to love affairs, the battles waged and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr Rad.
1: And I'm Dr G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different ancient authors and comparing their accounts.
0: Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr Rad. And I am Dr G. Welcome, Dr G. I'm so excited to be back in this century with
1: you. Woohoo! We're nearly at the end of the 5th century BCE.
0: It's kind of incredible that we've made it so far. I know, I know. So welcome everybody, welcome to our world of ancient Rome. Here we are traipsing our way through the 410s BCE as we look at Rome's journey from the founding of the city. So, Dr. G, before we head into a new episode, let's do a bit of a recap, shall we? Where were we last time we met?
1: Look, the big standout for me was the return of an Achilles into the role of the Tribune of the Plebs.
0: That's right. We have been dealing with all this conflict of the orders stuff. For decades now, and I mean decades in the sense of the Romans' decades. Maybe nearly a century now. (laughs) Yeah, a decade for us, but (laughs) for them, almost a century. This classic struggle between the patricians, the plebeians, who these people are, God only knows. But it's certainly presented to us like a battle between the elite and the powerful, and those who only wish they were. Mm,
1: Yes, the old class struggle, writ large in the early Mm. Republic of ancient Rome.
0: Yeah, and Achilleus is from a family that's very much historically been on the plebeian side of things.
1: Yeah, they're famously a family that has held the Tribunate of the Plebs on a number of occasions, each of them landmark events in the struggle of the Order's in this classic tale and yet what we seem to discover in this third iteration of an Achilles coming into the role is that the potential for revolutionary change is kind of swept away by other matters there seems to be a pestilence of some kind
0: there is a pestilence. It's not the worst pestilence that Rome has ever seen, because you know we've we've had some bad ones in the time that we've been talking. I remember that time there was meat falling from the sky. Gross. I think that was in the. I know. I think that was in like the 450s, maybe. I <laughs> my, my I should have checked that before I brought it up. But yes, we've had some bad things happening in the past. This one's not the worst, but it's certainly serious enough that people are very much focused on just getting by day to day. And this kind of leaves Rome and the situation
1: of where we're up to with this history on tender hooks, if you will run with the meat analogy a little bit further with me, (laughs) because we're like, what's going to happen in the next year? And luckily we're here together to find out.
0: We are indeed. So without further ado, let's delve into 4.11 BCE.
1: It is 4.11 BCE.
0: It's a very thrilling time. We've This means we have new consuls. We do have consuls. Note that we still don't have any military tribunes with consular power. I think the patricians are still feeling a little bit concerned about who might get elected if they opened that door. Yes, much better to make
1: sure it's a patrician-only situation. And exactly. what better way to do that than by having consuls in power? Exactly. So who have we got, Dr. G.? Alright, we have Marcus Papirius Mugalanus. Mm. Possibly Atratinus? We're not really quite sure. So well, I think some of those of names branches. sound familiar. Yeah, some of those I think names sound all familiar. All of those names sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> this man know. is familiar. <laughs> Marcus,
0: have I ever heard Marcus mentioned on this podcast before? <laughs> Never.
1: <laughs> and fair enough. I mean it's a very rare name. So this Marcus Papirius Mugulanus was previously mm. the military tribune with Consular Power in 418 and also 416. So okay. he's in the middle of quite an illustrious career at this point.
0: Yeah, this is his decade, the 410s. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: It's happening for him. And he is joined by somebody known as Spurius or Gaius. We're not quite sure of the praenomen nomen of this fella. Mm. naughtius Rutilus, oh behave
0: <laughs> i know
1: spurious naughtiness what are you up to he was previously military tribune with consular power in 419 and also served together with papirius mugalanus in 416 so these guys mm. have even held the top job together before
0: Mm, and yet we're still not certain of their names.
1: <laughs> and we still don't know whether they're friends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I love the confusion of the source material. Everybody has different names and nobody can figure out where they go.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and the Roman propensity
1: for naming everybody after everybody else in their own family does leave a legacy of some confusion for everybody else studying them thousands of years later. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So what are these consuls facing, Dr. G? We've got a pestilence on the loose. We've got a tribune who's just itching to get an agrarian law passed. It doesn't bode well for them, I'm not going to lie. And sure enough, (laughs) the year does not start well. As we know, when people are too sick to get out of bed, they tend not to farm. Lazy.
1: (laughs) Mm, How dare they? The trouble with that is that it has uh, some knock-on consequences because if you don't farm while you're unwell... Nobody does that farming for you, and then nobody's got food to eat. So then not only are you sick and hungry, then you're also starving.
0: Exactly, and this has happened to Rome before after pestilence. We've we've seen this pattern again and again, and it looks like this year was going to be no different. Rome was in dire need of some corn, and it would have been headed straight for a very serious famine, except... They asked around, they kind of passed the hat around and said, please, sir, I would like some corn to some of their (laughs) (laughs) neighbours. Could you possibly spare any grain? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They were asking up and down the Tiber. They apparently were like, you know, looking around the Tuscan Sea area saying, excuse me, I don't suppose you have any surplus grain. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose they do have some friends in the local
1: region. Of course, uh, not they everybody do. would trade with them.
0: <laughs> no, this is true. So, specifically, the Samnites, who are at this point in time well ensconced in Capua and Cume, would not engage in trade with Rome, even in this direst hour of need, Dr. G. For shame.
1: Yes, look, the Samnite relationship with Rome is going to be a rocky one. Let's put it that way. That's yeah, my foreshadowing. I think it's a of,
0: yeah, foreshadowing, <laughs> foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Yeah, absolutely. I think we haven't seen a it.
1: lot of the Samnites and the Romans yet, but just you wait.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the person that does apparently come to their rescue is, and I'm quoting Livy here, Sicilian tyrants.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. (laughs) Well, that's quite interesting, actually, because the Sicilian tyrants haven't been having a great run of it themselves because they've just been under the military uh, invasion of the Carthaginians. So it's not
0: like they're in a great way right now. (laughs) Well, this is the thing, right? So most people have pointed out that Livy must be a bit off here because there actually aren't any tyrants ruling Sicily in this year. Uh oh, Livy. So, He's a liar. <laughs> well, how dare you. How <laughs> very dare you. <laughs> look, it, it's possible, like it's close in time. It's possible that obviously we've just got the order of things slightly out of whack. Like, mm, it is possible.
1: That, you're being very generous to Livy here.
0: Well, look, let me put it this way. We're fairly certain that the person that he's referring to, even though he does not name him, is Dionysus I, who came Mm. to power in 409. So you see, it is very close. (laughs) Very, indeed. All right. Yeah. And it, it is very possible as well that the Sicilians would have been wanting to win Rome over as an ally at this point in time, because as you said last episode, Dr. G, there's some issues going on in Greece, a little thing known as the Peloponnesian War. (laughs) There are some
1: things going on in Greece. And one of the consequences of that is that the Greeks are trying to push their way into Sicily. That Mm. is one of the grounds in which some of the battles are taking place There's a Carthaginian interest also in Sicily.
0: Absolutely, Sicily
1: historically, uh, as I'm sure listeners are aware, is its location right smack in the middle of the Mediterranean makes it kind of like a very strategic location for all concerned uh, who who live around that Mediterranean edge. So, interest is high. Sicilia is facing various incursions from different directions. So maybe they are desperate, even if well, the tyrant
0: is not quite in place yet. Yes. I think that's exactly it. With The Battle of Syracuse, which has just been waged in 413 BCE, or I mean the whole campaign sort of running from 415 to 413 BCE, as Athens is trying to strike out at people who are allied to the Spartans and supplying them with grain. And as you say, with Carthage rumbling around, and Carthage and Rome at this point in time are technically allies, it probably was a wise move for them to help Rome out whilst, you know, Rome is looking around for some friends. No. Yeah. Now, most of the corn, however, comes from the Etruscans. Curiouser and curiouser. I know. So, it seems that the Etruscans, who by this stage are mostly located to the north of Rome, they mm-hmm. obviously don't want Rome to take their business elsewhere, i.e., Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? We've got yeah. the best prices on grain. <laughs> yeah. And the Etruscans also have a hostile relationship with the Samnites because the Samnites have kind of displaced them in Campania. Typical, typical. The local so politics it's... is starting to get
1: messy around here.
0: I know, and all over corn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you got to eat. What can I say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of about all the detail that I have in that basically there was almost a very serious famine, but Rome managed to find some allies and managed to pull itself out of that and the danger was averted. It does seem like there was a bit of a shortage of manpower following on the back of the pestilence. It seems like the consuls need to bring in extra people to help them with things like embassies. (laughs) because they just don't have enough people who are available to help them out with the day-to-day administration. But that's kind of it. So 4.11 is a very quiet year, but don't you worry, (laughs) we're about to enter 4.10 and we're about to get some serious developments happening. (laughs) Well, before we enter into 4.10,
1: just to give you a sense of just how thin on the ground my source material is currently... (laughs) you're so joking Di- you don't have any source I- <laughs> material <laughs> <laughs> i know i've been chatting about sicily for like 10 minutes now but i know nothing yeah. <laughs> uh, so in 411 the fasti Capitolini is missing so that's yes. our big list of consuls
0: and high level ex- magistrates yeah which explains why we have all the issues with the names yeah
1: well yeah well explains some of it for sure yeah. and then i have Diodorus siculus who we've talked about is- uh, quite often recently, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say he's useless, but he he comes and goes in terms of accuracy. He does. He does yeah. And when nobody else is around, he gets to be very accurate because he's the only one who's got the names.
0: <laughs> this is true. This is true. He's got so a <laughs>
1: That that may or may not mean that he's correct, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, so he has Marcus Papirius and Spurius Nautius listed. Now mm-hmm. there is the ongoing date discrepancy that happens with Diodorus Siculus because right. he always tells us the consuls in the same sentence as he tells us who's the current eponymous archon in Athens. Right. And this is always out by a couple of years. So by Diodorus's reckoning, we're in about 408 to
0: 407. Well, there you go. There are tyrants in Sicily and Livy was alone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if Livy is following uh, the same sorts of source material that Diodorus is following, then yes, um, he's, in, he's on the right track. Mm. And the other source that I ended up going to for this, and mm. this is, again, testament to the thinness of my source material, is I went <laughs> yeah. to
0: Cassiodorus. Wow. Okay. I don't think we've mentioned him at all ever before on this podcast. Look, I could have gone to him before
1: now, but there was no need in some respects. And things were so desperate for me that I decided that maybe Cassiodorus could help me. (laughs) Now, who is Cassiodorus? I'm glad you've asked. Mm. His full name is Flavius Magnus Aurelius Cassiodorus Senator. Now, senator is not a title, it's part of his name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is living in the late 5th century and doing most of his writing in the 6th century CE.
0: Okay. So,
1: he serves under Theodoric, the king of
0: the Ostrogoths at Ravenna. <laughs> Wow. So, so we're yeah. not even really under Roman rule anymore. <laughs> I've got some
1: bad news, listeners of this podcast. <laughs> the Romans are going to take some heavy blows.
0: <laughs> and they shall Bullshit. be no more.
1: <laughs> yeah, by the time we get to Cassiodorus, uh, the Romans, it's, it's a little bit over. We've got the Ostrogoths at Ravenna. Ravenna is the new capital in some respects in the Roman West. It's it's pretty over. Anyway, he writes a work that's known as the Variae. It's a collection of letters, and he also does some epitomes of other historians. So he's got a whole list of magistrates, which is very exciting. And it has been translated very kindly by people who live on the internet. And (laughs) I know, aren't they delightful? Scholars who are like, you know what? This will be a great service to all concerned. (laughs) Mm. Translating is a time consuming task. And so we do have the names for this year of the consuls, also from Cassiodorus, but this is where the Gaius Nautius name comes in. Controversy. So, yeah, we think he's spurious, but Cassiodorus says he might be Gaius and such being the thinness of our sources, we let Cassiodorus get away with that one. <laughs> but that is all I've got. That is literally it. I've got like three sources, maybe with some names.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad <laughs> we got to meet Cassiodorus because I'm sure he will come up again.
1: I hope so. I hope so. I'm not sure that he's going to have too much more to offer us besides names, but you know, it's fun to
0: to know he's out there. Okay. Well, let's move on from this year of trade and corn and potential famine and talk a little bit about 410 BCE. So who are our magistrates for 410, Dr. G? All right. I have a few magistrates.
1: I've got consuls and I've got a tribune of the plebs.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So our first consul is Manius Amelius Memminius. Ah, I know that name. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's going to go on to have a bit of a career. It's a mm. it's a time for people having new careers. This is his first time I think as consul. Mm-hmm. And maybe his first time in any particular high level magistracy that we've we know about. So this is an exciting year for him. He is joined in the consulship by Gaius Valerius Potitus Velusus. Now, this guy we have heard of before.
0: I was going to say, I think I remember that name. Velusus. Yeah. Yeah. Velusus, yeah. Potitus
1: Velusus. Sounds Mm. a bit like a terrible cough, but (laughs) actually was a military tribune with consular power in 415. And... Tribune of the Plebs
0: mm. Marcus
1: Menenius
0: Ooh, interesting mm-hmm. name Our <laughs> names all I have? maybe <laughs> <laughs> alright well let me tell you let me give you a little bit of narrative to flesh this out so in 410 we abandon the peacefulness of the previous year because the Aquians are once again getting ready for war Dr. G I hope the plague's over Yes. Now, well, I mean, I think the plague was just affecting Rome. They don't really talk about it being more widespread than that, but we'll we'll see. Now, the Volskians are going to be teaming up with the Aquians once more, however, not in an official capacity. They kind of just want to earn a bit of pocket money. And so they're like... We're just going into this as silent partners? Exactly, yes. We will fight as your employees, but we're not going to fight officially. Wait a minute. The Volskians are now mercenaries? Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the Romans start to hear of the usual signs that trouble is afoot, which is that the Aquian and the Volskians have teamed up and are attacking Latin and Hunnician territory.
1: Mm. All right. Now this makes perfect sense because yes. the Aquians are to the slight northeast of Rome mm. and the Volscians are to the south and southeast. And Hunnician territory lies right in the middle between the Aquians and the Volscians.
0: So they're like, let's get together and make a Hunnician sandwich. <laughs> yeah.
1: We're, with a big, huge pincer movement, we can punch that Henician sausage straight out of the sandwich.
0: Yes. Now, the Latin Henicians are, of course, going to call on Rome for aid. Rome is going to obviously make sure that they're going to fend off these attackers. So one of our consuls, Valerius, starts getting the troops ready for battle. Except there's a little thing called domestic politics that he hadn't counted on, even though we've seen this pattern so many times before, and that is our tribune of the plebs sees this as his golden opportunity to stop the levy and try and push for an agrarian law before anyone goes into battle anywhere.
1: (laughs) I kind of love these tactics.
0: I mean, they don't
1: get old and they just keep happening.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. So we're getting into sort of the classic conflict of the order stuff that we have dealt with before, where the plebeians know when they've got the patricians over a barrel. They know that Mm -hmm. the patricians need them to go to war, deal with these issues, and that, therefore, they're going to actually pay more attention than they might normally do to their cries for land reform. Fair enough. So the men who don't particularly want to go to war now have a perfect out, and they can go to Menenius, our tribune of the plebs, for protection. Okay? And they can refuse to take the oath to serve. However, disturbing reports start flowing into Rome. The citadel of Carventum is captured by Aquian forces. Where is Carventum? <sighs> Nobody's really sure. <laughs>
1: Actually, but it's a big I deal. Do have, I do have some details on that. Okay, excellent. Do you want to say them now? <laughs> <laughs> Carventum. This is known as an ancient city of Latium and listed by Dionysius of Halicarnassus yonks ago as one mm. of the 30 states that's part of the latin league right so definitely part of this latin group which means that they probably are on the borderline on the edge of hunusian territory the hannutians aren't latin speakers as far as we're aware yeah they're they're correct. in they speak it a slightly different language. So for Coventum to be a Latin city, we'd have to assume that it's slightly, it's one of these borderland type places. So this means that people have speculated for ages about like where this place could be. Mm -hmm. And one of the big speculations is that it's somewhere in the Alban Hills.
0: Yes, that is what I found as well.
1: Specifically a place called Rocca Massima. Ooh, now there's an alternative theory because that's pretty old theory and that's one that's mostly discredited now. More recent scholarship suggests that the town is near Prineste which is also a member of the Latin League. Mm-hmm. And if you you can still see it on maps today and it's basically due east of Rome and the Alban Hills are kind of in the middle between them. So okay. once you get past the Alban Hills, after you still go east, you hit Praeneste, and they think that this town of Coventum might be there, and the Citadel is obviously inside it somewhere. We okay. haven't found any trace to prove any of that, but that's kind of the gist.
0: Well, there you go. It all makes sense to me, but... Regardless of where this place is, the fact that it has been captured by the Aquians whilst the Romans are bickering amongst themselves is highly embarrassing. (laughs) The patricians are not happy. Yeah. (laughs) The patricians are really not happy. And they decide, you know what? We're going to use this to our advantage. We are going to use this military setback. To shame Menenius, we will manage to turn him around. He will allow the levy because we can't allow this to stand. (laughs) Allegedly, the rest of the Tribune of the Plebs that are serving this year, who are nameless, of course, have already... Been won over to the patrician's side in this argument. In fact, but, hell, all re- but why? <laughs> I know, I know. There's so many details I'd like to know. I kind of think this relates back to something we spoke about a few episodes ago, where they had this idea of like dividing and conquering, you know, using mm. like a classic method from way back in the beginning of the Conflict of the Orders, where I guess they promised the tribunes, you know, favors or. I don't know, some sort of unofficial alliance or something like that. And therefore the tribunes are like, well, you know what? This is a pretty crappy gig that I've got here. I may as well make friends with the powerful people in this place. <laughs> I, know I may what's as well betray my kind. Yeah, I'll betray my kind and everything that we stand for so that I can wow. get ahead in this world. Look, I
1: feel like the only thing that would lure for being over at this point would be the promise of becoming a patrician. But I feel like that's Ooh. not on
0: offer. That is not on offer, I know. <laughs> but yeah, we don't really know the hows and the whys and the wherefores, but we know that a few years ago, one of the younger, Appius Claudiuses of the world had suggested that they bring this tactic back, and I feel like it's actually never really gone away, even when they're not talking about it. I feel like the patricians are continuing to keep the tribunes of the plebs divided and winning over some of the ones who are maybe a little less scrupulous to their side because – apparently they've already been turned against the idea of an agrarian law and land reform or all that kind of stuff. And now they're just using this military defeat to publicly side against Menenius and it gives them like sort of the perfect excuse. Like they don't have to try and cover up the fact that they're doing something a bit weird by siding with the patricians on this issue. I wonder if this might also be related to the changing
1: dynamic over time of the, what does the Tribune of the Plebs represent? I feel like mm. potentially Livy is doing a bit of a retrojection here, where one explanation you could posit for why Tribunes would behave this way is that they actually come from very rich plebeian
0: families. And yes, so, which we've spoken about before, this is not a class struggle between the rich and the poor, it's mm. a struggle between the people that hold a lot of power in an official capacity and people that are barred from that.
1: Yeah, so it might be the case that some of these people who get into the role of Tribune of the Plebs see this as the top job for people with their kind of background and they're willing to use that wealth in whatever way sort of furthers their own ambitions rather than looking after, as much as we might like them to, uh, the little guy who could use some representation
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And this is what we've talked about before, that probably a lot of the people that we hear about from the Tribune of the Pleb position or even some of the named plebeians that we get in our sources, they probably have more in common with the patricians that are named in our accounts than they do with the average person in Rome at this point in time. Because if they're this involved in politics, (laughs) then you kind of have to imagine they've got a fair amount of free time on their hands. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. Now, so you'd think that this would obviously be really bad for Menenius, you know, there he is, the sole tribune standing out against the levy. Militarily, things are not looking great for Rome's allies. The Aquians are making incursions into their territory. Is this the moment that he caves? au contraire, Dr. G, (laughs) it only makes him stick to his guns all the more. And so we have a really long, drawn-out argument apparently ensuing between the patricians who are like, please, for the love of God, just let us hold a levy, we've got to go and deal with this. And Menenius being like, not on your life, (laughs) not until (laughs) I get some land reform. God damn it.
1: (laughs) It's like as soon as you do land reform, you
0: can have a levy. Yeah. Now the consuls are obviously at their wits' end. They do not know what to say to this guy to convince him. So the consuls call on the gods and all of Rome to witness that Menenius personally is to blame for anything bad that is happening or would happen in the future. Whether it's defeat, whether it's the ultimate disgrace, whatever it is, it's all going to be menenius's fault <laughs> because he has held up the levy this <laughs> is does sound
1: pretty disturbing. So they brought the gods into this.
0: They have. Mm, this yep. is a bad sign, patricians. <laughs> it is now Menenius comes back to this, you know, big threat. I said, well, well, not threat, but you know what I mean. Like Menenius comes back to this big call, I suppose, and says, "Look, it's quite simple. Just give up the land that the patricians are illegally occupying, and I will allow the levy to go ahead. That's all I'm asking." yeah it's very simple yeah and again we return to this idea which you and I highlighted again and again seems so weird that the land is being occupied illegally which as we've said just doesn't really seem to make sense for Rome in this period but this is the narrative that they're sticking with <laughs> oh look Livy is not going to give that
1: up and I would assume that if Dionysius of Halicarnassus were here with us <laughs> he would not give it up either <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. So we've got this very late Republican idea of land and land reform and what that should look like in the early Republic. Nonetheless, let's power on. This is where something incredibly weird happens. And I honestly don't think there is a good explanation for what I'm about to say. Oh, this sounds exciting. Yeah. So there are nine other tribunes of the plebs. These are the guys that have already turned on Menenius and now publicly have a reason to be calling him out and you know saying that he shouldn't be holding up the levy. Okay, So all of these other tribunes agree to back Valerius if he starts using harsh measures to get people to enlist in the army. Oh, they're going to use violence to enact the levy. Not just violence, money too. (laughs) Valerius is allowed by these tribunes to start using fines and other forms of coercion, which I presume does mean physical force, to get people to enlist, even though Menenius is using his veto power to hold up the levy. Now, this is apparently passed as like some sort of actual decree. It's not just like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we'll back you up, buddy. It seems like there is something made very official about this so that Valerius can go about his business.
1: That is very interesting because, and it doesn't make sense. I agree with you. It does not. Because one, (laughs) it calls the whole concept of the veto into question and the veto power of the Tribune of the Plebs is something that we we haven't really strongly historically established yet, anyway, and so for it to be sort of dismantled so robustly in this moment is a bad sign. It and is. I would question whether that would be the case, but also what the hell is going on?
0: (laughs) I know, I know. Look, I think this highlights, as you say, it definitely highlights, I think, the fact that supposedly we have this position of the Tribune of the Plebs that has come out of the Conflict of the Orders. You know, it's been one of the only big wins the Plebs have really had. I mean, they've had a few, but that's probably the biggest one. However, you and I have also talked about the fact that we're not really sure if any of the Roman magistracies <laughs> actually exist? Are there consuls? Are there? I don't know. And so, it's very we possible. We definitely that... have
1: lists of names. <laughs>
0: That's yeah, all we I have can lists tell of you. names. Exactly, we have lists of names. But as we've talked about before, you and I very much run with this theory that actually it's probably a lot more ad hoc and you know clan-based power. You know at this point in time, rather than having these very structured systems in place. It's pretty clear so, that Rome is working out its systems of governance.
1: Definitely. And we're, we're just on the cusp of hitting one century of the Republic, if those sorts of timelines are ones that we sort of notionally want to agree to. So we're in a working out kind of phase and arguably and I think this is true for Rome throughout all of its history, there is never a moment of clear political static stability. The whole thing is always, always dynamic. So what is happening here, this clash between what seems to be various magistrates, that might be clashes between families, as you say. This could be Gens versus Gens. Some with more prestige, some with more wealth. Some who maybe want to see Rome go in a different direction, but that doesn't get articulated or recorded and it doesn't make it into our analytic histories that are written like centuries later.
0: Yeah, exactly. And as we've talked about last episode, this is a period where Rome does seem to be militarily getting back into its game. <laughs> you know, we do have some expansion happening like nothing too crazy it's not like they're like capturing Greece but we are definitely seeing a slightly different direction for Rome than we have seen for some time and it seems like the dark cloud that had kind of settled over the latter half of this century is starting to lift and allow for you know more of these kinds of moves on Rome's behalf but certainly I think it does it definitely highlights once again this idea that the Tribune of the Plebs has like fully is fully formed, and we know exactly what the Tribune of the Plebs can and cannot do. Uh, I think that this highlights that that's not the case at all. Um, but it it's possible, like if we say for a second that okay, maybe there are people that hold some titles at this point in time. Maybe one of those titles is Tribune of the Plebs. Let's run with that for a moment. If we go along with this idea that they maybe have some sort of veto power, that they are invested in some sort of sacrosanctity, what this incident might be highlighting is that that isn't really worth a lot if your colleagues aren't willing to back you up. Yeah. Because we're we're talking about at this point in time, and and we talked about this when I think the Tribune's very first came about, literally the idea is that that Tribune would – Physically be there to offer protection if someone was in need. Usually, when we were talking about it originally in this sense, I think we were talking about, you know, being dragged off into debt bondage or something like that. But the idea was the tribune would be there to physically offer you his protection. And if he wasn't physically there, you may not get that protection and I, I think you can kind of see that potentially in this instance as well in that it's all very well and good for many us to say you shall not pass but it doesn't really mean a lot if people aren't willing to you know go along with it and back him up and that sort of thing and he can't be everywhere at once. Yeah that's that is part of the problem that
1: if he is going to if he does indeed have a body which is considered sacrosanct while he is in this role to allow him to do that physical kind of protection. He does have to be somewhere really obvious and have everybody who needs his help run to him so he can then attempt to run a circle around them of protection. (laughs) You know, this would be the only way that it would work. Uh, He might have people come into his house. He might be able to save one or two, maybe 10 people. But if the consul's are getting their military officers to enact a violent levy to enforce enlistment, it's going to be very hard for Menenius to be everywhere to see that off, particularly if he doesn't have the support of his other nine tribunes.
0: Absolutely. He is absolutely an island right now. He is the walrus. (laughs) Now, the consul Valerius, of course, now that he is backed by this power that's been given to him by the other tribunes it seems he starts dragging people who are refusing to enlist in front of him and making such a spectacle of this that everyone else gets really intimidated and is too scared not to enlist so the the tactic works perfectly sounds about right sounds
1: very patrician i have to say it does
0: So as a result, the Romans are finally able to send an army marching off to this citadel that has been captured, Carventum, wherever that is. (laughs) East. Let's say east. (laughs) Yeah, to the east. Okay. Now, with everything that's happened, there isn't a lot of love happening in this military body, Dr. G. Are you telling me morale is low? It it is a little bit. The troops hate Valerius, and Valerius hates them right back. Uh, You know, one could have guessed if you
1: violently beat people up to force them to be in your army, that maybe they wouldn't care
0: for it very much. I know. Now, I thought when I read this, okay, so we're headed for one of these classic Roman military defeats or something like that. And this guy is going to end up getting into so much trouble for being a terrible commander. But that's not actually what happens in spite of the fact that there's this tension between them. They all do their duty, they serve well, and they manage to drive off the joint Aquian Volskian force. The Aquians having kind of made it easy for them by not putting up a particularly strong defense. <laughs>
1: they sent the mercenaries that they'd hired from the Volsky home.
0: <laughs> well, I think that rather than maybe having everybody, you know, in the citadel <laughs> holding on to it, they'd said to people yeah, you know, if you want to take five, go for a wander, look for some stuff, do some pillaging, do some raping, that kind of stuff, you go right ahead. Just be back by six. Mm, Discipline was lax. Exactly. Discipline was lax. And so it was quite easy for the Romans to sort of breeze in and take over. And it's becoming a bit of a sad and typical story. They did not find a lot of plunder because, of course. The Aquians and the Volskins know that there's a war going on, and therefore they'd stashed anything that was really valuable for safekeeping. I kind of love that it's taken like a good century
1: for everybody in the area to figure out that it's like, let's hide the spoils yeah. somewhere else,
0: you know? <laughs> exactly. First <yeah>.
1: steps first. <laughs> yeah.
0: But let's not just keep it in the living room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, let's hide it
1: somewhere. That could be good. It's like, oh, it's taken a while, but we got there.
0: Yeah, so they obviously captured some stuff because what happens next is that Valerius allows the Quaestors to auction off any booty that they have captured and whatever money is raised is going straight into public territory. Is this a strange thing for the Quaestors to be doing? You betcha. (laughs) It does sound
1: very (laughs) odd. Public territory. Does this mean, is this a tacit sort of suggestion that there's aga
0: publicus involved here? Look, it, I think it's more the fact that that kind of a job would usually fall to an urban praetor, so someone who's located in the city of Rome. They might potentially be involved in something like that. But if we're talking about military quaestors here, which I think is what is meant to be happening, that is not usually part of their role. Uh, it, it just... Again, it just doesn't seem right. It seems anachronistic. Uh, it does. I would shock, say that you know? that maybe yeah. what's
1: happening here is that the writers, potentially Livy, is thinking about the quaestorship ship in its much later form. Exactly. Where it does exactly. become this kind of the financial attache yes. of, of the military commander. And that's not really quite where the quaestor is at, as far as we can tell at yeah, this point no, exactly. in
0: time. Yeah, at this point in time, it doesn't really makes sense if we are reading this the way it's being presented and so this is obviously meant to be a big public statement to the army you're not going to get a cut of anything that we capture until you are obedient so stop your whinging stop your whining or no more spoils for you (laughs) oh man (laughs) yeah now this of course does not endear valerius to his men (laughs) well there's a surprise (laughs) yeah and because most of the people who are serving as your regular rank and file soldiers are plebeians they of course let other plebeians know that they are unhappy and the mood spreads (laughs) now valerius is granted an ovation oh yeah fancy air oh, no. it doesn't seem like that big a deal to be honest it seems kind of like he just waltzed into this place <laughs> being I was gonna left say, open. it seems like yeah. it wasn't hard to
1: take back this citadel so is it really deserving of an avatio but I guess it's desperate times and Rome hasn't had heaps of military success for a few years until the last haven't. couple
0: so yeah exactly. maybe they're excited
1: it- and their standards are low. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, and also, I mean, you know, he's also from, I guess, one of those families, like the Valeria. Like, we've talked about them a lot. They're pretty prestigious, you know. They are very prestigious. They're pretty powerful. I'm sure they know who's back to scratch, if you know what I mean. But anyway, so (laughs) Valerius rocks up for this avatio. Not quite a triumph, but still, you know, Rome going, well done. And finds that Rome is not actually saying, well done. (laughs) Instead, he's being pelted (laughs) with abuse.
1: Oh, okay. So he's... So he's been awarded the ovation by the Senate, presumably.
0: Look, it doesn't
1: actually say, but, I mean, you would presume so. Yeah, I would presume so. I think it's kind of that sort of suggestion would come through. Like you you don't get to just have an ovatio. It gets granted to you in some way. But if the general urban population is not into that, I can see how a walking procession through the city in a very – a uh, slow and deliberate, supposedly celebratory way, could be great fodder for your rotten vegetables.
0: <laughs> exactly. So he starts getting abuse, and that's not really what Yoruvatio is meant to be about. It's meant to be a special <laughs> moment. And everyone's catcalling him. And then, interestingly, praise starts to be showered on Menenius. So... Menenius starts to become, you know, a figure of appeal again. I mean, not that I think everybody like turned on him, for example, but I would imagine that he obviously lost a bit of credibility after everything that had happened. But when everybody starts shouting out the name Menenius, it kind of spreads through the crowd, the enthusiasm just Builds. menenius is now the man of the moment and he's the one who's getting cheered and everyone's really (laughs) crazy for menenius and that's not really how avatio's work
1: (laughs) (laughs) i love this redemption arc though where it's like the people have realized that menenius was the guy that was on their side and they're like you know what
0: this has gone badly and the only guy who stood in our corner (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And this is the thing. I don't think the people ever doubted that he was their guy. I think they were just intimidated into obviously behaving a certain way, but now that they've seen the way that Valerius acted after this victory, I kind of think they've got nothing left to lose at this point in time. And and they're just being, they're just being vocal. They're just expressing their feelings, to G. <laughs> Nobody can get into trouble for that, can they? Exactly. Now, the patricians are extremely nervous by this public display. They're like, okay, it's not out of the ordinary for there to be some tension between the regular soldiers and their commanders, who are, at this point in time, usually consuls or military tribunes with consular power. They're like, that's fine. We can deal with that. That's apparently how things normally are. We can also accept that there's usually a lot of tension between patricians and plebeians. Apparently, that's what our society is all about this century. (laughs) It's hashtag trending. But this demonstration kind of puts them on high alert. So once again, we see the paranoia coming out. They feel incredibly certain, after everything that's gone down recently, that if they allow military tribunes with consular power the next year, rather than consuls, Menenius will be the first plebeian to be elected into that position. Oh,
1: they've been paranoid about this for a couple of years now. That's why we keep getting consuls, isn't it? Or at least that's the rationale we're being they have.
0: They have been paranoid about the plebeians finally getting to that point. However, in this particular instance, it's because they've actually got a guy. Like, they're like, this is the one. <laughs> this is the one that's going to cause all these problems, okay? Now, this is interesting because and this is where I'm going to highlight this. Menenius is not a name I think we come across much again. There was, if we go back to 483 BCE, there was mention of a tense relationship between a Valerius and a Manius, but that's not the same name. No. Okay, so that's a bit of a, hmm, not really sure about that. That's
1: questionable. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the the Menenius family certainly is a well-known plebeian family, but it's just this particular guy, we don't really hear about him again. So it's interesting that they're like, this is the one. (laughs) This is the one we've been afraid of, <laughs> uh, but yeah. If we, I mean, if we go all the way back again, you know, it's, as you highlighted before, when we were talking about the Achilles of the previous uh, episode that we were talking about, he's obviously from a very well-known plebeian family with a long history of, you know, these important moments of resistance against patrician rule. Menenius, we actually do have a Menenius mentioned back in the first secession as well, but that's a Menenius from a patrician.
1: Family. I was going to say, this name isn't unknown to us. We've got this patrician side of the Gens and we've got a plebeian side of the Gens. We do, yeah.
0: yeah. And the plebeian side is well known and they will be associated with this position again. But yeah, this particular guy, he's going to be disappearing into the mists of time. Look, I think this might end up
1: being like a number of things that we see in this time period with our analyst historians, which is that they're inserting potentially names that are quite familiar from later generations. Exactly, yes. Into this narrative, one, to sort of maybe flesh out the details a little bit, Uh, and two, maybe there's some legacy of those family oral histories where people tell of the great people uh, they're great ancestors, and these stories are coming through in those sort of family traditions. So without sort of having more independent evidence to think about, it does get quite messy to figure out whether this is like, is this guy real? Is he more of a symbol for something in this narrative? And he needed a name, so we'll associate him with the kinds of qualities that we associate with the Menenius family from a later period. Yeah. All that kind of stuff might be going on here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, they are so paranoid. They're like, not now, Treehouse Pal. You're not coming in. None of you plebeians are coming in. We're locking the doors. And so they make sure that there are going to be concierge elections because, as you said, not only have they been paranoid about plebeians, you know, crossing that threshold... But now they see this guy and they're like they're like, he's got the fire, you know, <laughs> he's he's got he's got the gifts, he's got the charisma, he's got the uniqueness, he's got the nerve, he's got the talent, he's going to make it. <laughs> the name
1: on everybody's lips is gonna be Menenius. <laughs>
0: I'm amazed that you managed to make all those syllables fit. Well done. (laughs) I was really proud
1: proud of myself. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so that is where 410 ends for me. And I can tell you now we are in for more fascinating. Bizarre, probably anachronistic, maybe fictional moments in the conflict of the orders in the years ahead. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) That means, Dr. G, that it is once more time for The Partial Pick. (coughs) All right, Dr. G, tell us what The Partial Pick is all about.
1: The Partial Pick. There are 50 golden eagles on offer for Rome, judged across five categories So for each category, they could get a score of 10 golden eagles if they perform exceptionally well. Mm. And we are just going to judge them by their own
0: standards, really. So we'll see. How will Rome perform for me today? Mm -mm -mm. All right. What's our first category, Dr. G? Our first category is military clout. Well, I do think they deserve some points because obviously we have got the recapture of the citadel of the mysterious place that nobody knows where it is except that it's east.
1: <laughs> is this the place
0: that they also lost? Or do the
1: Hunnutians technically lose it?
0: No, they, they didn't. I mean, they did they didn't lose it. It was just taken by the Aquians and then they took it back. Hmm. Yeah. And this, this is why this is why Valerius got the victory. <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, I understand yeah. that concept, but who yeah. owned it in the first place? Well, I guess we don't really know where it is, but <laughs> given <laughs> given the narrative that I have, to me it seems like it must be in either Latin or Hanusian territory because that's that's what the Aquians and the Volskians are doing. They're attacking the you know, Rome's allies. Yeah, basically. yeah. I'm just yeah. wondering,
1: like, you know, does it count as a – as a substantial victory worthy of high praise and thus a lot of Roman golden eagles, if they're just sort of taking back something that maybe wasn't really part of their stuff anyway. Like
0: this is true. I mean, we don't, it's not really clear if it's even, maybe it's theirs. maybe maybe it's super scary. I don't know. These are the questions I'm asking. I mean, the consuls certainly are very worked up about it. Mm. <laughs> it's definitely seen as like a really big deal <laughs> that they've allowed this to happen. It strikes me that Carventum
1: and its mm. Citadel may stand at this point in time as kind of like a buffer for Rome on the edge of its on the edge of Latin territory. This yeah, is just a possibly. guess. And and so it's maybe strategically important and that's potentially why they're so invested in making sure that they retake it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously a huge deal. It's not like they're like, eh, what's one Citadel? Hey. <laughs> like, Citadel here, Citadel there, whatever. Yeah. yeah, they definitely can't allow it to happen. So I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I guess I see it as a, if if Valerius is getting an avatio, that's what I'm using as my barometer here. Mm-hmm. I feel like it must be significant enough to matter And therefore, I feel they deserve like maybe like a two or a three. Oh,
1: all right. I was going to give them like a four or a five. And I was like, look, a vertigo is a hard work. But I, I, you know. Let's say a three.
0: I think a three. Because as you say, I don't think it's that big a deal because it was taken by the Aequian. So the Romans just got it back again. It's not like it's new territory. Mm -mm. Yeah. All right. Although, I mean, again, we don't really know if it's theirs or someone else's. but <laughs>
1: uh, The variegrees of history.
0: I know. All right, so we got three. All right, what's our next category? Our second category is diplomacy. Okay. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Although I suppose if we go back to 4.11, sorry, forgetting 4.11 because it was a bit of a blah year, There is obviously the whole issue with, you know, securing grain, which they do very nicely. They don't steal it. They buy it. (laughs) Oh, that's true. They make friends with the Sicilians. They do. The tyrants. (laughs) Well, well, well.
1: And they also seem to buy some from the Etruscans. So things seem to be going well with that relationship, kind of. (laughs) Definitely, yeah. Okay, so what, like a
0: two? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think this yeah. has to be held in balance with the fact that diplomacy within Rome doesn't seem to be going great.
0: I'm still so not sure that we should even be talking about diplomacy <laughs> if it's within Rome. I don't think that makes any sense. No.
1: <laughs> well, you know, negotiating's anyway. negotiating. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's certainly war with the Aequians is not diplomatic. Not that they started it, but. That's true. They, they finished it. So <laughs> Look, I'll give them two points for the grain. Okay, all right. Next category:
1: expansion.
0: Hmm, <laughs> this comes back to the question <laughs> of geography again.
1: I'm really not sure. I feel like it has been mentioned little enough
0: that it's not Roman. It's
1: yeah, and look, it's a Latin place, and it's run by yeah. some Latin
0: people. Look, the places that I've seen mentioned in connection with this spot, none of which were the ones that you mentioned, so clearly we're reading different sources, it doesn't seem like this site is actually that far away from Rome, but it's certainly not within Rome right now. Yeah. yeah. So it's close. I mean, maybe like Tuscaloosa distance. Mm.
1: But Tuscaloosa isn't Rome either. So, you know. That's what I mean.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not far from Rome. Yeah, in, but all of these places speaking. are kind of
1: running themselves. So yeah, I think yeah. this is not so much expansion.
0: Mm. Or maybe it's like is protecting allies. If they
1: hold on to it.
0: Well, they do. I mean, at this point in time they're holding it, and we have to judge them on what we've got for this year. At this point in time, they've held it. Alright, let's give them two. Okay. I feel guilty because I know something about what happens in the future, which might affect this, but I have to judge them on what we've just said. <laughs> uh, we can't talk about the future now. We can't. Uh, you made it explicitly
1: clear that we could Gotta only judge the them.
0: <laughs> That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Like, I feel guilty because I know what's coming, but anyway. Judging them based on this year. In this year, they hold it. Mm-hmm. Wink. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yes, exactly. All right, next category. We're to us. Blah. I mean, Menenius is a bit of a stand up guy, but I don't think that you could call what he does weirdos per se.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that we have enough detail to be able to claim weirdos for him.
0: No, no. He's a good tribute of the plebs. Hmm. Yeah. And Valerius is just a douchebag. So <laughs> sometimes that is weird to us, though. I know, I know, but not 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 in the room, not in the room, like he's is a douchebag by like a lot of people's standards, <laughs> not just ours. <laughs> All right, so I think that's a zero. Ooh.
1: Yeah. All right. The final category is the citizen score.
0: <sighs> well, I mean, I feel like it's positive that they don't starve to death. <laughs> And I think that it's positive that they have a pretty good Tribune of the Plebs on their side. But on the other hand, they have nine who are terrible at their job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the counterbalance isn't great there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But on the other hand, it seems like the war's not too long. Doesn't seem like many people die. And then they have the guts to stand up to the patricians, <laughs> specifically Valerius, when they get back. They do get to throw some rotten fruit, so that's always yeah. fun. That's got, I feel like that's got to count for something.
1: I don't think that makes up for the trauma of being beaten up to be in the army in the first place, but it certainly
0: helps. <laughs> Look, I don't know that that many people were actually beaten up. I think that a few people were, and everyone else was like, okay, I don't want that to happen to me. <laughs> we are like, ooh. Yeah. All right. I'd say on average then... We're probably looking Mm. at maybe a three. Okay. All right. Well, that's good, Dr. G, because that means that all my fingers are accounted for. (laughs) We've got 10 golden eagles for Rome for the joint years, 411 and 410 BCE. Now, look, that is a whole golden eagle up on the previous Two years, so it is an improvement. They're they're definitely making ground. (laughs) Oh yeah, and look, I'm really looking. I'm looking forward very much to talking about the next couple of years because there's definitely some prime patrician plebeian drama that is going to be happening. And you know, I love exploring the conflict of the orders because it's so crazy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I look forward to seeing what turns up in my research. Maybe I have some sources and discussing more about the struggle of the orders with you
0: soon. Indeed.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. A huge thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping make this show spectacular. If you enjoyed the show, there's a few ways that you can show your support. You can write a review wherever you listen in to help spread the word. Reviews really make our day and help new people find our podcast. Researching and producing a podcast takes time. If you're keen to chip in... You can buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi or join our fantastic Patreons for early releases and exclusive content. You can find our show notes as well as links to our merch and where to buy our book, Rex, the Seven Kings of Rome, at partialhistorians.com. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.